the church is intrinsically a political reality. I mean, this, people get weird about it. Like when they say politics, what do they mean? Do they mean the state, the apparatus of the state? And so then we let our imagination be co-opted and think the only way of being political, which is organizing with other human beings for a greater good uh, or for greater taking care of each other and ourselves, um, that somehow the state is where that happens. And then there's this thing magically outside of the realm of politics called the church. And that's just a horrible way of framing it. to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. Before we get started, brief announcement. Thank you to the handful of you that are continuing to support the show on Patreon. That means so much, and I can't thank you enough. I had a blast talking with Mark Van Steenwick today about empire, politics, religion, government, all the things that they say you really shouldn't bring up because you'll lose friends. You know, you, you can't talk about religion. You can't talk about politics. We talk about it all and blend it together, and, and it, was, it, was, it was very fun. And, and so a bit about Mark. So for nearly 15 years, Mark has been sowing subversive seeds of spirituality throughout North America. He co-founded the Mennonite Worker in Minneapolis with his wife in 2004. Mark is also an author of The Holy Anarchist, The Unkingdom of God, and A Wolf at the Gate, which is geared more towards a child audience. He also works specifically with the Center for Prophetic Imagination, based in Minneapolis, which serves as a purpose of integration with spiritual formation between political action, education, and nurturing leaders in a call to embrace God's vision as opposed to empire, and calls us to live and grow prophetically as we witness to the world around us. It is hard work, the work that the Prophetic Imagination Center is doing. I think the work that they're doing, though, is something that will impact our children's children's generation, which I think we can all agree is the hope for our future. And so that's enough of me. Let's get into the conversation. Table in the sight of my enemies, but I figured out my enemies is me. The hardest one to see is in the mirror. Then blue eyes look back and stare down deep into the bottom of my soul. Still looking for self-control and some discipline. Taking my daily medicine so the man in the mirror won't get the best of him. That blue-eyed devil is the accuser and a four-tongued bruiser. Now I'm wrestling with lies to see who pins down the loser. And I can't tell what's worse with every smile and every smirk. Mark, thank you so much for making the time this morning to come onto the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I've been looking for quite a few weeks, so I, uh, I appreciate you being on. Yeah, it's uh, good to join you. Thanks, Seth. For those that are unfamiliar with you, can you give us a quick crash course on what you would want people to know about yourself? Oh, wow. Um, well, I most of my work is involved with figuring out how do we embody kind of a radical take on the way of Jesus. Um, but beyond that, that all, that's already difficult to explain to folks. But it, the, the shape it takes is uh, I live in an intentional community that my wife and I started about 15 years ago. I uh, do a lot of speaking and writing around things. I put together conferences. Um, and lately, though, since I hit 40 and I'm trying to come into my, my burgeoning elderness, uh, I've been doing a lot more spiritual direction and retreats and uh, more teaching type stuff. Is is going going deeper instead of wider? Is forty the age that that we become 
ready to be an elderness because I'm I'm quickly approaching and I don't know that I'm ready for that yet. Well, see, I had the I had the almost cliche midlife crisis where I got depressed and I, you know, things were I had bad health and all that sort of stuff. So for me, it was the turning point. Like I need to this is the age where I have to start focusing on uh, what I'm what I'm planting in the world. And so that took me to more of an eldering place, I suppose. I'm not like there yet, but I'm like, okay, I could be dead at 65. That's when my grandpa died. So I got 25 years to kind of pass on what little scraps I have. So yeah, no, I, yeah, I, I agree. I feel like, yeah, my, many of my family died at a younger age as well. And and I always I joke at, at my work all the time, like, well, I'm halfway there. I'm 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 halfway to dead. So I, I need to I need to do something. You need to you need to get your shit together. Yeah. Yeah. Make it <laughs> make it happen. I just yeah, I'm I'm just I've just been slovenly with the time that's been allotted me. So Well, that's that's grim. I know. It it is what it is. So you're you're many things. So you're an author and and you, you run your center. Tell me more about this this community that you've built. What is this? Uh, which one, like the intentional community or the center for profit? The one that you and your wife started. Yeah. So, uh, 15 years ago, it actually, we started as an emerging church. Um, but within the year we kind of killed it and, and it morphed into an intentional community. It really were in the Catholic worker tradition. We, we called ourselves Missio Dei, then the Mennonite worker. And we recently, um, are calling ourselves the wildflower worker now because, um, hardly any of us besides me are Mennonites at this point. So, but we do hospitality. We have two community houses, um, and we do a lot of activist sort of stuff. It's all like in the out of the Catholic Worker playbook. In fact, the Catholic Worker community, the Minneapolis Catholic Worker, is like a block away. Um, they have got a couple houses, and we do a bunch of stuff together. For a while, we did church services, but now we're we're not doing that anymore. It's just uh, times of prayers, meals, hospitality, disrupting empire. It's kind of our our mo. Yeah, well, that's it's like you knew where you were going. That's a beautiful segue. So, uh, for those that have yet to encounter you, I encourage people to reach out. Mark, he's easily accessible on all of the social media platforms. But you have a specific, all yeah, all of them. Um, I haven't found you on Snapchat, but that's my fault. I'm not on Snapchat, and I refuse to be. So, I, I won't oh. find you on that. <laughs> um, the gauntlet is thrown down. Yeah, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing <laughs> it. If it's yeah, just not doing it. I don't understand the the icon, the logo that they use, and I just I don't want to don't want to do it. Anyway, that's a that's a rabbit trail. Um, uh, so you have a pretty different stance on on empire and government and systems of government and how people interact with that. What what are you? Like so some people will say they're a Republican, some people will say they're a I don't know, a Marxist or a libertarian or a I don't know. There's so many different terms. So what are you? What is your type of government that you see the church in, involved in or its relationship together? Well, I I tend to not – generally the word I would probably use and others would use for me is some sort of anarchist. Uh, but I that word is constraining and tends to be centered in kind of the white European narrative. But it fits. Uh, basically the idea of anarchism – anarchism was kind of – Back when Marx and others were talking about what socialism should look like, they quickly diverged into kind of two paths. One that was top-down, we need to seize the government and kind of bring about socialism. And the other one was a bottom-up sort of approach where we need people need to organize apart from governance um, in their unions, uh, 
farmer collectives, and that was called anarchism. So anarchism isn't the absence of structure. It's just bottom up. We don't need it to be enforced from the top down. So I'm a socialist who's also anti-authoritarian. So and I think, the, yeah. How does that work in America? And I will say, um, or I, I often allude to, to, to what my job is. So I run a bank. And so there's a part of me that hears that and it's like, oh my gosh, I'll lose my job tomorrow if, if this type of government. Can't talk. <laughs> so um, I, that doesn't mean I agree with it or not agree with it. I just, I just have a family to feed. So yeah. what, so are there both? So one is a government pushed down to socialism and the other one is a people rising up to socialism. Is there any other difference between the two? It gets into lots of nuances. And this is the thing. When, if you're around leftists of any sort for long, you find out that there's like – it's worse than being Baptist. There's like thousands of little <laughs> mini fractures. Uh, <laughs> and so there's anarcho-syndicalists, which is like the international works of the world where we think that things need to be organized around uh, like syndicates of union organizing. Uh, there's the primitivists who think we should go back to hunter-gatherers. <laughs> you know, there's oh everything. I tend to be – to me, I, I'm, I think of anarchism rather than the end goal as the, the process we do now. So anything that brings us more into radical democracy where the people are having direct say over what happens uh, is more anarchistic. And so how it works is more ground level, uh, neighborhoods organizing to get what they need. Um, and we live within the reality of governance right now, so it's not like the government's going away. So we have to figure out how to challenge the government without reaffirming its power, which is always the – it's the anarchist dance. So do I, I believe in universal health care? Well, if you're relying on the government to do it, government to do that, how, what do you do? Like So then yeah. there's all these conversations within anarchism, like how it's, it gets to be complex. Yeah. Um, and I have no – there's no answers, quick answers. We just have to keep organizing – in a more anarchist way where people are directly laying claim for what they want and need. So not to, to, to beat on a Baptist metaphor, but I have found being in a Baptist church and being involved in leadership and one that if you're relying on people to do things, people just don't volunteer if there's no self interest, no self vested interest. And so for something like a universal healthcare, uh, the government's going to have to administrate it unless they're not allowed to, in which case the people would need to do that. But so how do you how do you hold people accountable? How do you even get them motivated to want to do that? Because I know most people would not admit that they're lazy. No, and I tend to look at it. I'm a little less cynical about people's self-interest. I think people will do stuff that's collaborative and will share and help each other because it, if you move away from like the self-interest economics, there's the self-interest in security and prestige within a community, knowing that people need you and like you is usually how traditional societies kind of work. Like people aren't like greedy, selfish bastards at heart. They want to be <laughs> useful and cooperative, right? <laughs> Uh, and the, but the problem is we have all these myths that say like, okay, um, <laughs> uh, there's, there's a reason, for example, we had so many millions of people voting against their best interests with the Trump election, for example. So they believe in these lies and they think that the possibility of having neighborliness has been taken away from them. And so part of it is just reframing it, but then also looking at, we can actually support each other and have. Uh, healthier ways of being, and most people will opt into that. That's why churches exist. Okay, there's very little in self-interest with a church, unless you, unless you really believe that most people go to church because they don't want to go to hell. Uh, uh, well, I think I think a lot of people believe that. I don't believe that, but I do yeah, think but, 
A, a, lot, of a lot of people get people their don't. fire insurance. Yeah, but a lot of us don't, and we do it because we want to be a part of something that's meaningful, that aligns to what we think is ultimate truth, and we like being a part of something where we're all building something better. So what is the church's role in politics? What Should they be involved? Should they not be involved? Uh, you know, the moral yeah. majority comes to mind, and then there's the inverse of, absolutely not, we can't be involved at all. So how do we... I don't know. I, I follow so many people on Twitter, like a Brian Zahn that says political things all the time. And then there are other people saying, no, we shouldn't be involved in politics at all. We shouldn't vote. You shouldn't even be part of a party. You should just do church. Yeah. And I mean, my way of cutting through all that is the church is intrinsically a political reality. I mean, this, people get weird about it. Like when they say politics, what do they mean? Do they mean the state, the apparatus of the state? And so then we let our imagination be co-opted and think the only way of being political, which is organizing with other human beings for a greater good uh, or for greater taking care of each other and ourselves, um, that somehow the state is where that happens. And then there's this thing magically outside of the realm of politics called the church. And that's just a horrible way of framing it. Now, if you start saying, well, the church is a political reality, which in certain leftist circles uh, and traditions, you might call that uh, prefigurative, like the church is a, is a prefigurative political reality where we try to live and embody how we want the world to go. Okay, so we're a, a demonstration plot for the kingdom of God. Now, very rarely will you actually see a church embody that. So all these people that <laughs> claim to have more radical values, but then in their church, like the best they have is a thousand dollars a year they set aside for a jubilee fund. That's not prefigurative. That's that's nice. That's helpful, but it's not fully embodying it. So because of that, it's also I think important for the church to embody the prophetic role where we actually speak out and challenge the systems. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can make the the government Christian, but we can challenge it to be just according to our understanding of what justice is. And we can do our best to embody uh, the witness that we're calling the rest of the world to move towards. And I don't think the church is very good at either of them because we've so bought into this idea that we're not political mm -hmm. and that somehow in the voting thing, like we act as though voting is our sacrament where it's the one political thing we actually do. And it's actually one of the least politically effective things that we can do. And we make too much out of it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I agree on that. The way our electoral cost, uh, electoral college system is set up doesn't your vote it it matters in a pie in the sky type of thing, um, but it doesn't matter overall as far as you know who represents me. So no, the with the choices are mostly made for us before we get a chance to vote, and then we're. I mean, we should use it. Like I, mean, I wish we would have used the people would have voted to not have Trump in office, but let's not kid ourselves. It's not. That's like. That's a very impotent amount of power that we've been given at that point. Yeah. We should use it wisely or not use it. I understand. I, I was a non-voter for years for kind of out of a political protest, but then I thought it's not like I'm going to become compromised if I vote every once in a while. So <laughs> every, every decade. Um, yeah. <laughs> so what, what is the, what is the line then that we as a, as, as a Christian community should draw in the sand of the difference between culture and politics of what we can speak prophetically to versus what we can speak against. What is that? How do we find that line through a lens of, of, of Christ? I think we have to discern it. Like, so to me, I'm really, 
I'm a big believer that Jesus meant it when he said that he would send us the spirit to guide us into all truth. And that part of our mistake, especially in the Western tradition, has been to assume that we need hermeneutics to understand what the Bible said and then apply it to culture as though it's some sort of uh, disembodied intellectual exercise. And I think communities need to engage in discernment. I think there's reasons uh, why the Quakers were such badasses when it came to abolition and uh, suffrage and all these things uh, in the past and still have a strong peace tradition is because they still they are embody they embody a practice of discernment rather than coming up with disembodied external sort of principles and I know that's not that makes it seem messy and makes those of us who would kind of maybe are more reformed in our orientation afraid of thinking about how messy that is but then you look at the reform tradition and think, well, you guys have sucked. So (laughs) 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 it's not like we're going to do worse if we start trying to really be discerning and mystical about it. And so that's how we find the line. Communities have to discern together where the line is. Yeah. What would you say? And, and, and I don't know how I sit with this and I've, I've struggled with the phrasing of this question over the past few weeks. So what would you say to someone that says, well, Mark, this is naive. This is never going to work, uh, especially in the the system that we currently live in, where people have become so interdependent on all forms of government for many things that if you take that away, it, the whole thing will collapse. Like it, Rome will burn. What what would you say that that this is just a naive view of 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 government? Well, I mean. If I had a magical wand, I'm not saying that I would make all forms of governance and civil services disappear, um, although it'd be curi- interesting thought exercise. I, I think once you once you start organizing, if you're in an organizing circles, you start organizing for some sort of change, that is replacing the existing corrupt top-down moneyed sort of structure with a different one. So it's really not about this idea of anarchism as the absence of something as being a, a, a no governance or no structure is kind of, we need to replace that, that with, no, it's a, it's a leaderful structured way that is just, uh, it's just bottom up. And I don't know of any serious anarchist thinker who doesn't think about what kind of structures we replace it with. So this is one of the ways that they talk about this is dual power. You create an alternative structure with within the shell of the old and you try to push it out. I mean, I would love it if like churches started thinking in, in terms of dual power, like how do we meaningfully, uh, if we see an injustice in the world, how do we meaningfully build a counter response to that at the same time as um, calling out the injustice of it? So uh, health insurance, like there's no reason that churches can't, like a denomination can't do universal health care, for example. That the denomination right. Maybe provides? Enough. What's that? That the denomination provides? Or the people that organize for themselves. Mm-hmm. Like it's – if you and six friends can't really do insurance, but if there's a million people in a system, you can start thinking about all the kinds of things we could do instead um, at, and not do it in an Amish way where we're disconnecting from the system. This is where I, I think some of my Anabaptist friends get a little bit too carried away. We're not detaching from the world. we got to embody it, and then that gives us some heft when we say, hey, you need to get your act together, empire. She could take me, she could take me 
talking to me on the phone daily She could break me and engage me Have my last name and my baby She could move in, she could move in All these other plans I've been doing I feel like so much education would have to happen so do yeah. you see yeah how do you how do you do that how do you re-educate people in a way that doesn't make them feel ignorant of what they don't know that doesn't make them defensive because i find lately as i engage with any doctrine that i used to hold in especially on facebook that i no longer hold in i quickly either get blocked unfollowed called a heretic or many other words. And so how do you yeah. how do you how do you do that? How do you how do you engage in that conversation without just being laughed right out of the conversation or dismissed altogether? You know, I don't know. All I know is that that's discouraging. <laughs> it is. I mean we're that's what we're trying to work at, like what the Center for Prophetic Imagination is starting to try to do, especially with Christian folks. But I do know like, for example, a hundred years ago, a large number of rural Minnesotans, this is where I live in Minnesota, um, were either part of uh, the farm labor party or there was a lot of them that were socialists. So rural Minnesotans were tended towards socialism. Okay, so this it's only a couple of generations where all of a sudden now you have this conservative moral majority kind of way of thinking about things and that's anchored in rural America. Um, so it's possible. And I think there – I know there are different tactics that I'm just kind of skeptical of, like some groups like – uh, sojourners and red letter Christians are trying to engage uh, within evangelicalism to bring about an evangelical left and look at the tactics the evangelicals right has used and try to do those same sorts of things to challenge the narrative. I think there's something to that. I think, uh, but I don't know. I mean, there's so many ways out there, and I don't. None of them have really gotten at it because I mean, this is where it gets really. The problem is is conservative. Christian evangelical Christians and conservative Christians have more money to spend than the kind of the leftist ones is yeah. kind of what it comes down to. So that's the big problem. And I don't know how to get past that yet. Yeah. Um, I do want to talk about the Center for Prophetic Imagination, but I, I have one more question about sure. the gospel and its relation to empire. And and so as I read scripture, as I've begun to reread scripture, I've come to think that you know, obviously the gospel, the good news of, of, of Jesus is for everyone, but it seems to always begin with the poorest, with the most broken, with the most handicapped, with the most disgusting of humanity, and it works its way inward to center. And I yeah. don't see much of a room there for someone that is affluent. You know, as I sit here on a MacBook on high-speed internet, uh, doing that. So how how does the go- is the gospel only for poor? poorer people that's not even a, the good way to say that that's a very hateful way to say it. <laughs> is the gospel only for the the least of us because there doesn't seem to be much there for an affluent person uh it's not only but it starts with like so to me I mean, this is luke reading the gospel of luke I and mean, that's how i got uh radicalized like right after 9-11 I was disillusioned with how angry everyone was, and I read the Gospel of Luke, and I went from being a fundamentalist to a pacifist in a period of a couple of weeks. It was really mind-bending. And then if you read through Luke, it's there's all these opportunities for wealthier or affluent people to be a part of the Gospel, be a part of the kingdom, but it comes through their relationship with the poor. Yeah. And so from a Christian perspective, the engine of the Jesus-y sort of revolution is the poor, disenfranchised. And then, but others, the good news for us, 
who have more power um, is that we can be a part of it too if we align ourselves in solidarity with those who are oppressed. Yeah. And so that's the good news. Um, the idea that somehow – the idea that wealthy Christians can accept the way of Jesus and it doesn't affect their wealth uh, is a lie that we tell people so that we can get their tithes. Yeah. <laughs> like I, that's basically it. <laughs> I heard you – I read you say something similar to that on Facebook not long ago about what is uh, – I'm going to say it wrong. Something about it's it's immoral for X, but it's also immoral to be a billionaire or a millionaire, and I'm saying that wrong. There's no there's no moral justification to be um, a millionaire or billionaire. Yeah. Because yeah, something like that. Because I should give the money away? Is that what I'm hearing you say? Or that I should I don't know. What 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 am I say I inherit that money, what am I supposed to do with it? Well, I mean the interesting thing is like it's not about giving it away, it's about the power over the money and the and the way that that money causes you to see the world. So, a lot of people look at Warren Buffett or Bill Gates as examples of just billionaires. Um, my problem with that is they're still using their money to enforce a way the way they want the world to be. Even if they're doing it charitably, it's still uh, an expression of wealthy power. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I see happening with Luke and Axe is this uh, giving up. And it's not about just becoming poor ourselves. I don't think that's a goal. It's, it's actual jubilee where – the wealth that we are given has become part of a shared process for determining what is God doing in the world, and then our money should go towards that. So it's really – if we've got wealth and assets, we should ask by what criteria do we decide what to do with this and who has a say. If I – if we somehow think it's justifying to be able to tithe some of it away, then we're still reinforcing this idea that the wealthy white people get to d- inflict their vision for the world upon the world, and we need to challenge that. So what do you do if you inherit a billion dollars? Uh, I don't know. Like maybe <laughs> develop some sort of discernment council with some oppressed folks uh, and pray about it. What if I and wanted let them to, have a say? What if I wanted to give it to the Center for Prophetic Imagination? I mean, you could. We could help you <laughs> go through that discernment. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, so what? So you, Center for Prophetic Imagination. We we talked around it. So what exactly are you doing? What are we? What am I prophetically imagining? So what we're doing? Uh, we're trying to figure out uh, ways of forming people, especially mentoring young leaders to engage in a more prophetic posture in the world. So what does that mean? If you look at seminaries and any institutions of higher learning, they train uh, church folks to be pastoral, uh, which is ultimately a way of maintaining. Pastoring is, is a ministry of continuity. Like how do I maintain the integrity of this group? Being prophetic is a ministry of disruption. It disrupts things, um, and there's good reason why seminaries don't train people for disruption, <laughs> yeah. because it doesn't keep the denomination in seminary life. So we're trying to figure out, like, what does it mean to equip people for this? And we don't have a lot of money for obvious sorts of reasons. Um, so, but what we do is mentoring. We have a conference coming up in September. Uh, that's kind of the anniversary of Walter Brueggemann's 40-year uh, anniversary of Walter Brueggemann's book, The Prophetic Imagination, which was part of the inspiration for our name. So he's coming out and some others. Uh, we do lots of retreats. Um, and really the big question is how do we mentor people well for a prophetic way of engaging the world? 
Yeah, and so when I went to your website, I saw you've got these seven core principles, first being foremost that Jesus is the center and ultimate example for your life. Uh, but there mm-hmm. was one on there that I'm confused again, uh, confused about. And so it says, hold on, let me find it. I've got it written down. Imperial structures and myths, and that's the part I'm confused about, seek to alienate us from one another, from the rest of creation and from our creator. So what do you mean about myths and imperial structures? Structures can be institutions. Myths are just the stories that we uh, believe that give our lives and our society meaning. So an imperial structure would be uh, like the government, the big banks. Sorry. Sorry, dude. No, I, work at, <laughs> I work at a small bank. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good then. You're all, you're golden. Um, <laughs> well, I say small. Uh, it's about 100 branches. So I don't know if that's small, but it's not Bank of America. So yeah, no, there's there's a difference. Um, so those different structures, the way, like when we start talking about white supremacy, for example, we know that it's an institutional reality, right? We see that within the banking and redlining and stuff, but then also like the police policing, uh, Congress, there's all these ways that whiteness gets reinforced, um, the prison industrial complex, but the myths are these ideas that, uh, it could be anything from a small kind of little lie, like the idea that, uh, black people are more violent. Mm-hmm. which is it's not that's not big that's a big lie but it's small in, the, in its simplicity like it's a very simple idea um or it could be a bigger one the idea that uh that the the myth of democracy which we say like for example everyone in the united states thinks that we're a dem- not everyone but a lot of people think we're in a democracy and the reason we get involved in places overseas is to spread democracy that's complete bullcrap that's not true none of that's true at all so these are all myths that we believe in that keep us kind of trapped into assuming that the way things are is the only way things could ever really be. This is that uh, democracy and the fact that soldiers, when they die, it's a sacred thing. All these sorts of ideas, we just take them for granted. It's not even provocative to think them. It's just assumed. And so these things, if we buy into them, we end up being alienated from God, from one another, uh, and from the land. It's like our whole way of seeing the world is tainted. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, well, especially that part of, 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 of us spreading democracy throughout the rest of the world. I had an online conversation not long ago with a friend from high school that I don't think we agree on a lot anymore, but we, we do still respect each other. And he had mm-hmm. said, you know, we should hold Russia accountable for meddling in the, the you know, yada, yada, yada. I said, well, great. What do you want to do for holding America accountable for all of the places <laughs> that we've meddled? He's like, we haven't. And so I give him the list and how he oh, done. he's yes. like, he's like, well, they should, they should handle that and they should prosecute us. It's like, well, great. How we spend more money on guns and own more of everything than anyone else. So how do you want them to do that? How is, how is Venezuela or any of the Vakias or, you know, anywhere South Korea, how, how are we supposed to, how are they supposed to prosecute us? And he, he quickly changed the topic. So, yeah, well, and it- I mean, it's not like the it's not like the UN is going to be able to hold us accountable. It's in America. Since, yeah, we, we've got a grip on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The ambassador lives downstairs, or or could if she wanted to. So, yeah. um, I had I, I want I want to give you the opportunity to plug your podcast. I have enjoyed the Deep Roots podcast quite a bit, specifically the one. Oh man, I'm going to say his name wrong. It was related to Martin Luther King. Um, uh, By Bayard Rustin. Yeah, I can't I can't say that, especially not with. Not with these braces in my mouth. There's too many weird consonants in the wrong spot. Um, so, so plug plug the podcast. What are you trying to do, and how does it relate to, um, to your ministry now? 
Sure. Um, one of the things that I know like Walter Brueggemann talks about in Prophetic Imagination is one of the markers of a prophet is that we live in a sense of a living memory, that we're a part of a tradition. And part of the thing I'm trying to ex express is that the prophetic tradition didn't just stop with John the Baptist, that Jesus uh, embodied the fullness of the prophetic tradition. But then throughout church history to today, we see the prophetic kind of ministry alive. And it's not just the way we use the word prophetic in our society. If you're if you're like a, a charismatic, it's someone who sees the future and speaks in tongues, uh, which is my background. Um, that's not really what the prophetic thing is. And it's not just people that are social justice-y. Uh, like the idea of spiritual people who just do social justice as being prophetic, that doesn't get at it either. But a, prof a prophet is a type of mystic, someone who's experienced with God is such that they actually feel the divine pathos. They grieve God's grief. And then that propels them to challenge what they see around them. And so I'm trying to tell the story of different prophetic movements or figures through history to kind of like re uh, recenter our sense of the tradition that we're drawing from and to also inspire us to be do likewise today. So it's it's a history podcast. Um, everyone I've talked about has been dead except for one. I did one on Ernesto Cardinal from Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. And the other piece about it is I'm also – the thing I'm enjoying about the podcast is I share people's flaws as well as their – these aren't like hagiographies. They're not just stories about awesome people who didn't have problems. Like Ernesto Caldenal was part of a, a revolution that ended up failing in a way. He had to back out of it. Uh, Simone Vey I did one on. Uh, she had some, some self-hatred and, and starved to death of her own will, <laughs> uh, Bayard, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bayard Rustin, uh, after MLK died, he started slowly shifting more neoconservative and his Zionism ended up causing him to give up on some of his earlier principles. Uh, but with each of these stories, you see the brilliance of God working through them. Um, and that's part of the story too, the amazing things they did and how they saw the world and their legacy. You were talking a bit about feeling grief with God, and I spoke with uh, Mark Charles not too many months ago, um, oh, yeah. and, and he had called, He said, he's, I asked him, I said, well, what would you do for the nation? And he said, we need to enter a prophetic season of lament, and not a service, not a month. We need to sit and lament long enough for God to show up, because he will, if we would just stop believing we're better than everybody else. We are not exceptional, yes. and we never were. Yeah. So, um, Amen. Yeah which I don't know how to do. I, you have to, it's hard to set aside your pride to enter into that. Cause I want to be good. And I mean, good, not in a moral way. I mean, good is in a better than way. So, mm -hmm. um, that's, that's my worst me. So you, and, and I wanted to end on this cause I want to see if you're serious, but I, I also like your ideas. So you are uh, apparently running for, for president in 2024. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not that serious, but I, oh, man. it'd be funny. I mean, I if there was a way to do it, maybe I'd do it. But like, I don't see me beginning any traction <laughs> for that. Well, I, I don't know. A lot of these ideas you see uh, people younger than me talking about. So, um, you know, you, you got things in here, like a student in health debt jubilee. I'm all about that, being that I have yeah. student debt. I am I am curious on some of the things you say in there because I want to see where your mind's from somewhere. So you said cancellation of third world debt. 
you talking yeah. about what they owe America or what they just, you don't owe anybody anymore. Like, how do you enforce that? Well, what they owe America. So like, I mean, here's the thing. If you're president, all you, the best you can do is you can determine uh, how the United States uh, enforces. Uh, you can also determine things like, uh, uh, yeah, enforcing of treaties, movement of troops. So a lot of these things, the things on the list are all re- reasonable things that I think a president could uh, initiate, but it's still up to Congress, uh, the groups. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I think uh, things like forgiveness of third world debt, what's owed the United States, pulling out of troops, uh, issuing executive uh Using your executive powers to kind of give guidelines for how you want, like Sally May and all these other, uh, like all the. I don't even like. I don't of, even like people named Sally anymore because of Sally yeah. May. So <laughs> yeah, so I mean, here's the thing: a lot of this, a lot of this stuff, like uh, student debt, is kind of managed by the executive branch. Like you can't change the laws if you're president, but you could tell uh, them to stop enforcing that. So it would be a functional kind of jubilee, even though like maybe four years later when I'm if, – if I even make it mm-hmm. – if I got elected, I wouldn't even make it past the first year probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the thing, you can definitely challenge some of that stuff. The thing you didn't put in here is how do you how do you take back down the wall that we've built by then? Uh, you give – you send in the National Guard that you just pulled from <laughs> other <laughs> Every, parts of the world. Everybody take and, home a brick. Yeah, and then it's like everybody take home a brick, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. No, I, I laughed out loud on that. And, and one more, and it's one, and I know you spoke with him, Josh from, um, he's a buddy of mine from, uh, from the awkward rhino podcast. Uh, he all the time talks about reparations. And so in how you view the world, what does that look like? Cause I, we have argued about that for years. How do you see reparations even working? I don't know how it would actually end up working, but it, it's to me it's a sin that a president hasn't at least formally said we're going to start talking about reparations. Um, we've we screwed up. Uh, we, you need more than an apology. Let's talk about reparations and then bring people to the table. I mean that's just common sense. Yeah. And of course, there's too many players to like be able to like. It's like the president can declare, okay, we're going to give. Uh, whatever number. I mean, it's, it's, it, reparations would be revolutionary. Yeah. Uh, unless it's, unless you're talking about a token sum of like 500 bucks or something, it's going to be revolutionary because you're going to have to start looking at not just, uh, redistributing some wealth, but also what generates wealth. I mean, that's the thing like land reform, mm-hmm. uh, uh, breaking up monopolies and giving some, you know, like, but you got to start talking about it. It'll at least start a, a national debate about it. So that – and something ends up happening because that will be more than anything that – that's the best chance you would probably have before some sort of revolution to actually do reparations would be a president or someone high up enough to to begin some conversation. Yeah. I would think if you would run on just that alone, you would have the the vote of, of everybody that ever wants that. So you, you could probably win. It, it would be fine. So um, enough about that. Wow. So, President Mark. Yeah, why not? Yeah. You know, making it, making reparations hey, wanna, great again. Do you want to do you want a cabinet position? I could try to work that out for you. Um, I don't know. Are you paying me? Because it, it, this sounds like a lot of this stuff. I'm not allowed to make much money. Cabinet positions. I think they get paid. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't really looked into it, but I mean, you get you have a job. It could be like, I don't know. What's the what's the part of the government that oversees like like 
finance? Is there a secretary of finance? I don't even know. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there is. I don't know all the cabinet positions. The only one the, I know is secretary of state. The Department of Interior or the Department of Labor. One of those two. Probably, probably the Department of Labor. But that sounds like more work than I want to do. So, yeah. um, so for those listening, where would you point them to? And I will say you've written and we didn't talk about any of the books specifically, but you've written The Unkingdom of God, which I would recommend I own that book. You've written The Holy Anarchist, um, and you also have a children's book, correct? A Wolf at the yep. Gate, isn't that, it's, it's geared towards children? Yeah, it's kind of a middle grade book with pictures. Yeah. Well, where would you point people to to engage with you, Mark? I've enjoyed this, but I want to give you back the rest of your morning. Okay. Uh, uh, you can look at Mark Van Steenwick on Facebook. I'm there a fair bit. Um, my own personal website is Mark Van S M A R K V A N S dot info. Um, you can also look me up there. Those are probably the two easiest places. Well, thank you again, Mark. Enjoy it. Yeah, thanks for having me, sir. The first one to care is the last one to know. The last on the list is the first one to go. I just want to know how I can get some priority seating. Your actions speak a language, but your words are misleading. Maybe I'm just needy. Maybe I'm being greedy. Just put me on the shelf and dust me off when you need And that was a lot. I know if, if you heard that like I did, there is a lot that can be desired when we think about how church should play a role in our government how we then should do things in place of the government, and honestly, how we should put our money where our mouth is. So what can we do? What can you do? Take a minute. Take today. Think about that. What is one thing that you can internalize and do in the community around you to, in a subversive way, do the work that you trust the government to do, but do it with God in mind and do it with the kingdom in mind? as we begin to try to subvert the polarization that has become American politics and American Christianity. If even one of you listening felt impacted by any of the episodes that you've heard, please consider supporting the show for a dollar a month at patreon.com slash can I say this at church. I cannot stress again how thankful I am for each of you that does that. This show is quite literally not possible without you. So thank you. All of the songs that you heard in today's episode were from artist Crumb, based out of Dallas, Texas. You can check his music out at IamCrumb.com. Links to that will be in the show notes. And as with each and every episode, the specific songs featured in today's episode will be on the Can I Say This at Church Spotify playlist, which, if I'm biased, is a fantastic playlist. Still need me, and I believe you, cause I won't leave you, and I don't want to, but I need to. I don't want to waste, waste your time.